0: Good morning. All right, that's definitely better. I feel better about that already. We're in lesson five in our study in the book of Hebrews, and we're studying in particular verses five through nine of chapter two, and I'm calling this the necessity of the incarnation, why the Son drew near to man, part one, sorry for that, we'll do part two next week in the will of the Lord when i was watching uh, a little bit of the olympics i think it was there that that uh, there was a commercial that came on uh, it was dial soap one of the soap companies but you know, i thought we had buried the kind of self esteem craze that went on for a long time and and this thing i don't know if you saw this but this this soap company's doing this thing where they do this program where all of these little kids say i am beautiful i am beautiful and, you know i feel good about myself I don't know about them, but I guess Dial would sell a lot of soap for me because I'd keep scrubbing that face and I'd and I'd look in that mirror and I'd say, not yet, <laughs> scrub a little more, not yet, you know. It, but this whole thing about feeling good about yourself—what are, what are the people among us who aren't beautiful in 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 the contemporary sense of the definition? What are we to do uh, with all of that? I noticed, too, that uh, there was a, an article that I read, oh, a few months ago by a guy who said, we live in the Mr. Rogers generation. And and by that, he was saying that we have been brought up with this I'm-so-special thing that every child feels entitled whether they do anything or not, and, and that th- that's just kind of the way it goes. And you can see that in the performance in college scores and whatever. There's just something kind of wrong with the way in which we're perceiving ourselves and i would like to say that this text ought to straighten out some of our thinking about self-esteem uh, among other things now where we are in in hebrews chapter 1 focuses on the deity of christ and on his supremacy to the angels by being higher than the angels The author is saying, God, who has spoken in various ways at various times to the prophets in the past, has spoken finally and fully in his Son. And his Son is higher than the angels. And he describes that by talking about the seven descriptions of our Lord in verses 2 through 4. And then you remember the seven scripture passages that come up in verses 5 through 14, all of which that declare our Lord Jesus the Son to be supreme, higher than the angels. Then we come to the exhortation of chapter 2, verses 1 through 4 that we talked about uh, last week. If indeed he is who the Scriptures claim him to be, then we ought to listen well to what he says, more carefully to what he says, lest we drift away. For how would we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? And then this week we come to verses 5 through 9, which are a part of that whole piece where now we are looking at the greatness of our Lord Jesus, but in a very different way. We are looking at him who became for a little while lower than the angels, higher than the angels, lower than the angels, but then exalted to the right hand of the Father, and, of course, in a great elevated position as king, as we talked about uh, this morning in the worship time. By the way, just for incidental purposes, this is actually the first time in Hebrews the word Jesus, the name Jesus, has been used. It's been the Son up to this point, and we are introduced for the first time to the name Jesus. Now let's look, uh, just get an overview of our text in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. You see the introductory word for, which is a connective, and I am going to maintain, as most people do, that the connection goes more to verses 13 and 14 of chapter 1 than it does to verses 1 through 4. Having said that, uh, I've, I've looked at 1 through 4 as a kind of an inserted exhortation, but there is a connection between verses 5 through 9 and verses 1 through 4, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. I might as well confess in verse 8 in the Net Bible that says, you put all things under his control, I changed it. And I didn't know exactly how to tell you about that, but I put feet. And the reason I did is because that's what the text literally says. And it seems to me that that's very important because it's going to link us to what it's just said in verses uh, 13 and 14 coming from Psalm 110. And we'll talk about that in a minute. It Then in the later places where it uses the word control, that is exactly right. It brought under the authority of the Lord Jesus. Uh, I might say, too, that the word angels that we see here in verse 9, for example, that that word is in the Hebrew text of of, of, uh, Psalm 8, that's actually Elohim. And so it could be rendered angels, that's the way the Septuagint does it, and that's the way the author renders it in the Greek text in uh, Hebrews, but it does have that sense of uh, the broader sense of God. He could be little lower than God if you wanted to render it that way. And the other thing is in verse 9 where it says a little while, it actually just says a little, and so it could be a little bit lower, that's one sense, or it could be lower for a little bit of time. That's the way in which I think most take it. He has been made lower than the angels for a restricted little bit of time, that is, during his earthly life and humiliation, but now he is exalted to the right hand of the Father. Now, can we look quickly at, at Psalm 8, um, this is really an incredible Psalm. I was listening to, to S. Lewis Johnson and he, uh, in his tape on these verses. And he said, I was tempted to do, uh, an exposition of Psalm eight. And I said to myself, rats, I wish he had. It would have been really good. So I'm stuck to do something on it, a little bit on it, uh, myself because he chose to, uh, to not take the time to do that. Notice when you look at Psalm eight, and by the way, I'm I'm going with a new SV on that because of some translation questions. But it's a psalm of David, and it's the kind of psalm that you can easily imagine David laying out, in caring for his sheep, and being in a situation where he's not back at the sheepfold and whatever, and he's laying out looking up at the stars and seeing all of that. So it's David's reflection on the majesty of God in his creation, and yet the majesty of man. So it's, it's the whole thing is framed by that expression. And I was thinking about asking that we we sing that this morning. It's not one that we normally sing, but it's in the blue hymnal. I found it in hymn number 121, so we'll have to do that one these days. But remember that... Uh, O oh Lord, how Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth? It, it's, it encloses the entire Psalm. You see it there uh, in, the, in the first verse and you see it there in the last verse. So I think that the, that the Psalm is saying to us, if you don't get anything else, figure this out. Oh Lord, how majestic is your name? The greatness of God as viewed in his creation and the seeming insignificance of man but that gets uh, corrected, as you'll see. Notice the the emphasis on the name. And, and that's one of the reasons I didn't use the Net Bible. It said reputation. But remember, it says back in verse 4 of chapter 1, he has inherited a more excellent name than the angels. So I think you want to stay with that. That's literally the, the this concept of the name and the greatness of the name of our Lord. And... Uh, so I'm, I'm sticking with that. That's my story, and I'm sticking with it. And and then verses 4 through 6, you'll notice, are the verses which are cited by the author of Hebrews, not the entire psalm, but really the core of it, if you would, is what's cited by the author of Hebrews. Now, I don't know whether this will interest you or not, but I found it interesting to see the other places where Psalm 8 is used in the New Testament. One of those is in Matthew chapter 21 and verse 16. This is, And, and I'm, I guess what I'm trying to prove in this is to, is to show that our Lord Jesus interpreted this psalm Christologically. That is, he interpreted it in the light of himself. Now, we can look at this psalm from the standpoint of what David is seeing. And remember we said that's a legitimate uh, primary meaning. But there may be something more that the psalmist has not seen. Jesus seems to say, to say so because here he is at the triumphal entry, and the children are crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna. And and the scribes and the Pharisees are really bent out of shape. And they're saying, how could you let these children do this? Silence them. <laughs> And Jesus says, well, actually, if you go back, haven't you read in Psalm, Psalm 8 that it says, uh, out of the mouths of children and nursing infants you have prepared praise for yourself. So there is in Psalm 8, there is this, this duality of greatness and smallness. And, and what's interesting here is who would have ever thought that God would use the insignificant powerless voice of a, of a of a baby to silence his enemies but that is exactly what God does the God who is the God who made all of this majestic creation is the God who has chosen to take the, the little the voice the weak voice of a little child and to silence the enemies and that's what our, our Lord basically says here is Don't you know how great and powerful God can make the voice of a little child? So the smallness and greatness is is drawn upon here by our Lord at the triumphal entry. Two other places that you could look at, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 through 23, and also 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And here's the thing I'm really working on. You can see from Ephesians uh, chapter 1 that it picks up on the theme from Psalm 8, verse 6. You have put all things under his feet. Because when it's talking about God who raised Christ from the dead, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above every rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named... That sounds familiar. Not only at this age, but also in the one to come. And God put all things under Christ's feet and gave him to the church as head over all things. So what you see is that this exalting of our Lord and putting all of the enemies under his feet is a result of his resurrection and his ascension. It is linked both in 1 Corinthians 15 and in Ephesians chapter 1. It is the outflow of our Lord's victory on the cross. So those two passages pick up the same language of Psalm 8. Now, we have to see the connection between Psalm 8 and Genesis chapter 1, do we not? And so I've put them there for you to see sort of side by side. But... You see this, these verses that, that have been cited. What is man that you take thought of him? And the son of man that you care for him? New, uh, King James says, visit. That's one of the words. And I think, isn't it interesting that that word would be used in connection with the incarnation? Anyway, that you take care of him. You have made him a little lower than God. You crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Now, Look at what it says in the context of Psalm 8, what that involves. All the sheep and the oxen, also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the seas. So in Psalm 8, you're looking at the the sovereignty, the, the, the majesty of man and the glory of man as the ruler of the earth under God, of course, but but as one who is given authority over the earth. Now look at Genesis one twenty six. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image. I would prefer the word man. Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over all the creatures that move on the earth. So here's the way I see this. David is, is laying out looking at the stars. And I mean, he doesn't have a telescope. He doesn't, he can't fathom the depth and the magnitude of the universe that we can, but he knows it's big. And he says, when I think about that and I realize you are the creator and and I realize how big you are and I realize how small I am, what am I? What is man? That you would pay attention, that you would care for him, uh, that you would be concerned about him. We're we're so small and insignificant. But before that, he has started with these little children who are also thought of as insignificant. Then he moves to creation and 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 the implications of that. And then he says, And yet, you have placed man in this place of glory and majesty to rule over your creation. And, and picking that up from Genesis chapter 1 verse 26. So you see the, the majesty of God and in spite of the smallness of man, the insignificance of man seemingly in the grand scheme of things, somehow by divine decree, by God's purposes that men would rule over the earth, man has this magnificent role that has been assigned by god i think you would all agree that when we look around us something has gone wrong well that's genesis 3 and 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 man has lost uh, much of that magnificence but there is still within mankind that that tarnished image of of the creator and and uh, our Author will pick up on that in Hebrews. So let's look at the author's use of Psalm eight, four through six in Hebrews two, five through nine. and, and just just look at, at the uh, sort of the the general lay of the land. He is going to cite Psalm eight, four through six, and then he is going to go and pick pieces of that up and talk about putting all things under his control. Yet we don't see all things under his control, but we do see him who has been made lower than the angels for a little while, and that gives us the basis for our trust in his ultimate reign. Now look at the next frame, if you will, which is uh, goes back and shows the relationship between uh, Psalm 8, verses 4 through 6, and the verses which precede it, and by that I mean verses 13 and 14 of chapter 1. Because he's, he's making the connection. We're still talking about the supremacy of the Son, and in particular, over the angels. He is greater than the angels. So when you look at verse 13, he says, To which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve those who will inherit salvation? So he's playing out this contrast. Which one of the angels has ever been invited up, as it were, to sit beside the Father and share in the administration of the earth? Nobody, but the Son has. The son has been summoned to the right hand of the father and all authority has been given to him. But in contrast, verse 14, the angels are servants. So we might put it this way. Verse 13, the son is sovereign. Verse 14, the angels are servants. There's the contrast between the greatness of our Lord, the son, and the uh, subservience, as it were, of the angels. Then we have the exhortation, verses 1 through 4. And when you look at, the, at verse 5 then, 4, he did not put the world to come, about which we are speaking, under the control of angels. He's now going back to that theme. And you have to notice, he picked up Psalm 110, verse 1, uh, in the previous verses, in the end of chapter 1, now he's going to bring in Psalm 8, verses 4 through 6. And they're talking about the same thing. They're talking about this, the, the, the supremacy of our Lord to the angels, and they're also talking about uh, the all things being placed under his feet. Let me see if there's anything else I want to say about that frame. Um, let's look at the next frame. So here's the thing: Psalm 110, that's been there in verses 13 and 14, that's been picked up in the contrast, verse 13, and then the contrast with angels in verse 14. Psalm 110 is talking about Messiah. Psalm 8, in its original layout, is talking about man. Would you not agree? And yet, both of them are are using this expression that the enemies are put, things are put under their feet. So the writer is saying, here's the correspondence. Here's the link. The link is angels. The link is being placed under, something being placed under the feet of the sovereign Lord. And so he picks that up, and he's going to bring those together. And so what you see is this is a transition. Verses 5 through 9 are transition. And it's going to say there is the necessity in chapter 1 of the deity of our Lord Jesus Christ. Everything hangs upon that. But there is also the necessity of the humanity of our Lord Jesus. That is essential to God's eternal purposes. That is essential to restoring man to the dignity that was lost at the fall. So that's the way I understand the the link between these two, the link between... The previous statement and the enemies being a footstool for your feet, the following statement being all things under your feet, the connection between Messiah and the connection between man. So the issue is, why, in this text, why did the son have to become man? Why was the, what was the necessity of the incarnation? And the answer is to be found in Psalm 8, so that the Son could fulfill the destiny of man, the majesty and the glory that God had given to man as one who would rule in the earth. So here's the way the argument goes. The supremacy of the Son in chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, he does not give administration of the earth to the angels, but to the Son, he will say, sit at my right hand. The angels are servants, and they are servants to men. They are servants to those who have been destined for salvation. So the angels are here to serve us. They're here to worship him, but they're here to serve us. But he, the Son, has been appointed to rule and to bring his enemies under his feet. So he goes then to Psalm 8 to demonstrate that God has not given control of this coming age to angels. There's some discussion in the commentaries about the role of angels in this present age, and I think we could probably agree that in the administration of this present age, angels are engaged in that to some degree. The book of Daniel, the prince of Persia, and and all of those things, and Michael, the angel that's looking out for, for Israel. All those things are involved. But we're talking about the coming age. He has not given administrative authority to the angels to do that. So the question is, to whom? So he goes back to Psalm 8 and says, look at this psalm. The psalm tells us that the rule and authority was given originally to men. To man, they were to rule over the earth. They were to subdue the earth. They were to have a position of power and glory under him because they are in his image. And, of course, something went terribly wrong. And so we see in this text, he says, he puts all things in subjection to him, and he leaves nothing that's not subject. But then he says, um, we don't really see that yet. <laughs> have you looked around lately? you would discover that all things are not perfectly in subjection to the Son. We've got all kinds of chaos and disorder, and so the question is, how can this be? Well, the Son has been given that authority by virtue of His resurrection and ascension. The Father has seated the Son at the right hand, but He says in Psalm 110, sit there until... I have placed your enemies under your feet. God's got things yet to do. But the ultimate realization of that is going to come, and the, and the writer to the Hebrews says, the reason we know that is we, I'm sure that's believers, we see Jesus who is lifted up and exalted. We see him by faith. Would you not agree? Remember, faith is believing in those things which you cannot see, believing in the unseen. So we believe, based upon the scriptures and what we have, we believe that he is exalted at the right hand of the Father and that all of these things are going to take place because of his work at Calvary. So the incarnation is necessary to fulfill man's destiny. Destiny that was lost by virtue of the fall. And everyone who is in Christ enters into that destiny. And they rule, and we know we will reign with him, the scripture says, we will enter into that destiny. And the key to it all is in verse 9, the problem of sin has to be dealt with. It is he who came to atone for sins. It is the work of the Son who became man, who identified with us. Now I'm kind of stealing the thunder of the next verses. But the necessity of the Son to come, enter into human experience, bear the, the, the sufferings and the temptations of men, and then die on the cross of Calvary, those things uh, the Lord Jesus Christ has done. And so all who are in him enter into that glory. Now, let's uh, make some uh, words of of, uh, conclusion and application, can we? Let me make an observation. I thought initially that verses 5 through 9 were just a throwback to verses 13 and 14 and that there really was not uh, a direct connection to verses 1 through 4. But I've changed my mind. If you look at verses 1 through 4, wouldn't you agree with me that they basically intone our words of warning? In other words, lest we drift away uh and and and, and why we should pay much closer attention. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? And so my inclination initially was that, that that the author's going back to 13 and 14 and that in effect, 1 through 4, two, one through 4, had just been kind of squished in between, but that there wasn't a direct link. But here's the way I look at it now. Because of, let's call it the negativity of verses 1 through 4, where it's it's more focusing on consequences for failure than it is on reward. Remember I pointed out that last week that it talks about how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? I think what the author's doing in verses 5 through 9 is picking up on that word salvation, and you say, okay... I think I got the warning part down for for now. I think I understand that there are dire consequences for ignoring the law that God has given in the Old Testament. There are even more dire consequences for rejecting the revelation that God has given us in the Son. So that's the negative part. But this is the word of salvation. So what does salvation look like? And I think our text expands upon that. And it says, one... Salvation is the forgiveness of our sins. Because of the suffering of death, he was crowned with glory and honor that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So our Lord Jesus Christ has taken on human flesh in order to die for sinners and to bring the forgiveness of sins that he's referred to earlier, having made redemption, cleansing of sins. He sat down at the right hand, now he's talking about that, but he's talking even more specifically. What does that salvation look like? And it seems to me that he's saying this. That salvation includes, not some in total, but it includes the glory, a restoration to the glory that men lost at the fall. So now it's not the negative side, it's the positive side. Think about that. I admit, when I was reading this uh, in the first few times, I was saying to myself, how does all this fit? But it's talking about the glory that God had designed for men and men had lost. How is that ever to be restored? It will only be restored by the perfect man. Is that not right? It will be restored by the perfect man, which is our Lord Jesus Christ. When he comes and he dies, he dies for our sins. When he comes and is raised again, as he has, and he's been exalted to the right hand of the Father, and he reigns, then we will reign with him. He is the Son. We are sons. He's going to talk about that a little bit, too, in in the following verses. But that is a glorious thing. Now, I'm going to jump down and cheat on my notes and, and go to self-image, uh, which is my last point, I think, and just say, doesn't this give us a different view of ourselves? I, I don't know why, but even Christian writers, they, they spent so much time for this for, for a, a, a period of time talking about bad self-esteem, and you talk about... When I was doing prison ministry, well, the, the prisoners, all of these prisoners have bad self-esteem and it's as though if we just got their self-esteem fixed, they wouldn't be criminals. Baloney. Men men have bad self-esteem because that's the way it is. We're not good, are we? I mean, when I look at the scriptures and I look at this and, and it says, woe is me for I am unclean, I'm a man of unclean lips. I said, there I go, that's me. But when I start talking about what's really so good and great about me, I've missed the point. I've missed the point of the depravity of man, of the implications and the fallout of, of Adam's sin and, and the sin that's impacted the whole race. I read Romans chapter 8 and it says that the whole creation suffers and groans. Why? Because of the fall of man. It isn't that man is so great and he just needs to know it. It is that man is not great and he needs to know it, but he needs to understand the perfect man has come. The scriptures call him the last Adam, not the second Adam, the last Adam. And so Romans 5 says, just as one man by his sin brought all of the human race into condemnation and created this whole mess... So through one man, the perfect man, Jesus, men may be saved and restored to the perfection, to the, to, the, to the glory that God speaks of in Genesis chapter 1. So what I'm saying is this. We ought not to feel good about ourselves. We're kidding ourselves if we feel like... Even as believers, we need to recognize that there is still sin in our lives and we're battling with that. Paul says, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Life is a struggle for the Christian. Perfection has come in the Son. It has come in the perfect man. He is the one who restores us to what we were meant to be. Now, as the writer says... It's not all looking just like that right now, but we are assured that it will be because we see the Son. How do we see Him? By faith. We see Him because He has left His Spirit to work in our hearts, to give us words of assurance, as Romans chapter 8 says, we see it, Ephesians chapter 4, by the spiritual gifts that he has given to men. And as God is at work in powerful ways in and through his church, we see that Jesus is exalted and he is on the throne. I was thinking about our prayer time this morning and about uh, our Lord being king of all. God being the king of all. And I was thinking about uh, the, the Old Testament and David. Do you remember when David was king and he got kind of sloppy about his reign and, and he wasn't... One of the things that the king was to do was to be accessible to the people. So the people would bring their concerns and their petitions to the king and he would answer it. And David got distant and remote. Who filled the gap? Absalom. Remember? He stations himself at the gate and he says, Oh, oh that I were king. If I were only in a position of power, I could do something about that. It's a tragic thing. And what I'm saying is, because our Lord is exalted and He sits at the right hand of the Father and He intercedes for us, His lines aren't busy. His phone lines aren't jammed. We can come to Him who is the King of all, the King of kings. We may present to Him all of our concerns, our heartaches, our heartbreaks, and he is there to hear. And our our sense of greatness, our self sense of, of esteem and glory is not within ourselves. It is within him. And so as we focus on Christ, then we see ourselves in the grand scheme of things as those who will rule with Christ forever. That's the greatness. So what is the purpose of the incarnation? So far as we see it here in our text, it is so that he can take upon himself human flesh, he can be the perfect man, and he can restore fallen men to the state from which they fell. And that is that they may once again be those who will reign with him, and share in the glory of his kingdom. So I want to say to you, if you are not a believer in our Lord Jesus Christ, that's where it starts. Don't try to feel better about yourself. It'll never work. Look to him who is the perfect man, who lived a sinless life, who spoke for God exactly the words that he gave, and more than that, he took on human flesh, lived a perfect life, and died the sinner's death so that we might have eternal life. should say this for believers. There is a relationship. I said that we don't see everything the way it is now. Obviously, I don't even have to tell you that. Read the newspaper, look at yourself. Uh, that's the way it is. There is a correlation between what we will be and what we should be and do now. Very clear a correlation. I was thinking, for instance, of 1 Corinthians chapter six, verses one through six. Paul is talking here to the Corinthian believers who are standing up for their rights. They're going to court with one another, and they're taking their dirty laundry out before the, 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 the world. And Paul says to them, "Do you not know that in the days to come we will judge the angels? We will judge the angels." I would take it, by the way, that that tells us where we are in relationship to the angels in the coming age, would you not? We will judge the angels. The inference is, if we can judge angels then, can we not settle petty disputes amongst believers now? Can't we do that? Isn't there some correlation between what we do now? Luke chapter 16, Luke chapter 18 are saying to us, the way in which we perform our stewardship now impacts the way we will participate in the kingdom then. Remember, uh, he talks about him who is faithful in a little thing, money will be faithful in much. In In the parable of the talents, he says, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. You've had these many things to care for here. You will have this many things to care for there. There is a correlation. Let's call that rewards. There is a correlation between what we do now and what we will do then. Now, I didn't wear green this morning, and and so I'm not going to get too carried away about this. But if we are to be kings of the earth, does that not say something about the way in which we ought to treat the earth now? if we're going to in the future, in eternity, if we're going to be involved and we're going to master the creation, then does that not say something about us and the way we behave? I was trying to decide whether to tell you about one of the stupidest things I ever did, but I'm afraid even though it's been 40 years ago, some guys had probably come, ecologically speaking, come and haul me off. But, you know, as a kid, I just didn't think about the implications of what my actions could have to do with with the creation. But it looks to me like that's an important thing for believers. We ought to be dealing with the creation in which we've been placed in a way that is like the way in which we should deal with it for all eternity. Let's think about those things. Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you for the fact that not only is the Son of God a perfect reflection of you with full deity, but he is the one who has taken on human flesh, perfect humanity, to fulfill our destiny, which we lost due to sin. Father, I simply pray that those in my hearing may look to the Lord Jesus, for he is the one who can forgive sin. He is the one who can restore that which is broken and fallen. He is the one who gives us dignity and glory and majesty because we share it because it's been achieved by the Son of God who became the Son of Man as well. Help us as we continue our study in Hebrews, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.